John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But his soul Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, so uh, I guess I got one little announcement to make before we dive deeper into the American Civil War and the documents collected in the Library of America series on the American Civil War. And that is I'm beginning to upload uh, my uh, episodes onto YouTube. So if you... Uh, hang out on YouTube, and you've missed some of my earlier series. You can go by. You can go to YouTube. You can you can find them all here on Podbean too. They won't be changed, but I'll just upload them on on YouTube to see if maybe that will reach a few more people. If that's more convenient for you, I'll be start uploading those. And and maybe there's episodes you missed or or whatever. And and I'll it'll give me a chance to kind of rethink about some of those episodes and and ponder them a bit um, as I as I kind of re-edit them for. Or distribution there but um that's uh not too not not really a big big deal if you've been um following along to this series uh which has been going on for almost three years four years now um a whole lot of episodes uh of course i had the hb lovecraft and the, the phil dick book clubs as well as my main series so um a lot of material there so i'm gonna slowly but surely start uploading that stuff to to um YouTube. Anyways, um, we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Um, so, anyways, uh, the the documents I'm going to look at today, basically, it's like about three from page 300 to about page 400 in the first volume of the Library of America series on the American Civil War. Um, and by the way, I guess I, I didn't mention this before, but the Library of America has been releasing a lot of these kind of eyewitness anthologies um, of Amer various American conflicts. Uh, I think the first ones they did were the journalism ones, right? So they had the journalistic uh, look at the Second World War and a journalistic look at the Civil Rights Movement. Not really a war, but, um, you know, a major event in American history, but anthology style, right? Uh, but those are just reportage uh, documents. And then I think the first one about a war that they published was, was the American Revolution. And then they, they have the Civil War series. They have one about 1812 now. And I think they have one about the Great War, so um, we'll see how many other wars get there, get volumes like this uh, as the series goes on. And, and maybe we'll look at them as uh, as I try to work my way through this Library of America series. But at my current rate, they're actually publishing faster than I can put them out. So there's like no way I would ever catch up at the, at the rate I'm going. Um, but that's okay. It's uh, an open-ended series. Uh, so anyways, let's let's jump into this. So the documents for today... Um, I guess the event that kind of is at the center of all this is the is it the battle of uh, the first battle of Bull Run? I, I think it might be. No, sorry, that's later. This only gets us up to June eighteen sixty one. So uh, April to June eighteen sixty one. So this is just like the kind of the the war fever moment where you had to kind of enthusiasm on both sides for war optimism on both sides about it being a quick war, uh, the mobilization of troops, the, the patriotic feeling on both North and South. Um, 
So it, it's kind of, it's before any of the real fighting breaks out, but, you know, after the first battle, the Battle of Fort Sumter, which we looked at in the last episode. So the very first document we have here is dated April 1861, which is actually a U.S. grant to Frederick Dent, who is his father-in-law, and then to his father, Jesse Root Grant. And these are interesting documents because he's he's sort of uh, letting asking advice and letting these these parental figures know of his decision to to enlist in the army, to re-enlist in the army, which of course many people had you know did. They served in the Mexican War and then they you know retired, went into private work or did other things and we saw how Sherman was was still working for the government but then he quit that and I think for a while just for a few months he was doing some other job somewhere before he entered the military again so um you know Sherman has his own story like this but these documents are really about Grant's decision to re-enter the war in his own kind of feeling of patriotic sentiment and I think his is fairly typical of of people who who made this change to you really got motivated by the attack on Fort Sumter and and decided to enlist Um, but what's interesting about if you compare it like Sherman was early early on was saying this is going to be a long war it's going to be nasty Um, but Grant here is optimistic it's going to be a short war but his reason why it's not like a military thing the reason he says it's going to be a short war is because of um, the slavery Um, he writes in all of this, I cannot but see the doom of slavery. The North does not want, nor will they want to interfere with the institution. But if they refuse for all time to give it protection unless the South should return soon as their allegiance, then too this disturbance will give such an impetus to the production of their staple, continent, in all their parts of the world that they can never recover the control of the market again for that commodity. This will reduce the value of the Negro so much that they will never be worth fighting over again. So just as Sherman was prescient in... The, knowing how like brutal the war was going to be, Grant's pressing about another issue, right? Remember the South believed that England would have to recognize them because they were so dependent on their cotton and the world market was so dependent on Southern cotton. And it turns out it wasn't really the case because the British were able to very quickly shift production to places in their empire. They had this global empire by that point, production in India, production in Egypt. So it's, and then you know, that actually weakened slavery as well. And of course, other things weakened slavery, the, the military, the fighting, uh, Republican policy, military policy, and things like that. And then the actions of enslaved men and women themselves and freeing themselves during the war and, and taking on the role of liberators. So that all plays a role too. But obviously, the, the global market factors um, did as well. And I haven't read Sven Beckard's book on the empire of cotton. Uh, and that might be a kind of closer look at this question if you wanted to dig deeper into it. Um, now, that's what he writes to his father-in-law. To his father, he actually sort of says, I'm going to rejoin the military, but he also asks for advice, like which is a good kind of son thing to do. Um, where he's kind of like, I ask for your approval on the, uh, and advice on this. So even though the decision is made, he still presents it as, you know, asking permission, which is it's just kind of an interesting um, way to go about it. I think it tells us maybe something about Grant's character, um, his formality in, in regards to, to his family. All right, next we have Jefferson Davis's message to the Confederate Congress, uh, April 1861. So this is 
really the special session of the Confederate Congress that was passed uh, regarding the start of the war, the start of the start of fighting. And he talks about it right away, opening up the speech as a declaration of war made against the Confederacy by Abraham Lincoln. Obviously, no such thing happened. There was no declaration of war because um, Lincoln, the Republicans, never acknowledged them as a foreign state that that war had to be declared, declared against. Um, so there's no formal declaration of war. And of course, it was the South that started the aggression, right? At Fort Sumter and throughout all these other numerous forts that were seized and occupied throughout their, um, throughout the South. But nevertheless, you got Jefferson here trying to frame it as the North as an aggressor. And of course, that's how some Southern apologists still call the war, right? The war of Northern aggression or some nonsense like this. Um, so what else is in this document? Um, I didn't take as careful notes this time reading through these, these texts. I think I, I was reading it more just in my office and didn't write down as much, but, but that's okay. I, I made margin notes in this case. So they're, 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 they're there. I, I kind of know what's in these, but I probably maybe won't be as detailed as I was in previous episodes. Um, and that's okay. Um, what else do we have here? Oh, then he goes into this kind of long justification of states' rights. So this is kind of rehashing old arguments. Um, but a lot of talk here about um, slavery and the necessity of slavery to the Southern um, cause um, and the necessity to have a constitution that defends that property in enslaved men and women. And also, on the other hand, the focus of Northern conspirators. Let's see, he kind of paints it in this conspiracy theory logic, which was not uncommon on both sides uh, in the lead up to the war. It's really continued into it. This idea that there's a con either a slave power conspiracy or an abolitionist conspiracy. Um, and Jefferson Davis really embraces this as well, um, talking about how there's like a step-by-step -step mission to undermine slavery and of course giving justification for the war um he talks about then he he kind of goes into some defenses of slavery as well talking about how we've uplifted these people and they're they, you know they're tr treated so well and that that same nonsense that was often used in defenses of slavery um but after doing that and it's it's sandwiched in between two discussions of states rights um but it's not hidden it's not like it's something he's shy to talk about. It's not like how in the original Constitution, slavery was really coded. They used coded language, even though it was obvious what, you know, three-fifths of a person was supposed to refer to and all that, or the importation of, of certain persons. That was, it was all clear it was slavery. But the language was, was more bashful, I guess. Uh, but not here, not here. Very straightforward. So another reminder that the Confederates at the time saw slavery as a foundation of their of their uh, society. Um, he also talks about it as a revolution and he compares it to the American Revolution. So this is all stuff we've seen before. Um, Lincoln as an aggressor, Charleston as the beginning of this aggression. Uh, he goes on to a long discussion to kind of department by department about what will be done. Um, diplomacy, how will European nations be addressed? Uh, he talks about, uh, you know, he sent about people he sends to the other states because the Secretary of State had a big job early in this war. One is to try to secure foreign, rep, you know, recognition, which of course never happened, um, and also 
get those border states, in this case, it's specifically like Virginia and Tennessee and those states that seceded after Fort Sumter to to uh, get into it. Uh, other departmental issues with like the Department of Justice and the Department of War and Navy. I mean, these departments are pretty much copied from the the U.S. Uh, constant or uh, the U.S. system, I guess. So they're not in the Constitution, but um, they're they're basically carryovers of the U.S. system. Um, so he's just saying that we're we're getting the government in in place to to fight this war, and he kind of goes through how to do it. But a lot of this speech really is a defense of of their cause and framing Lincoln as an aggressor, uh, and specifically an aggressor against the institution of slavery, if not. Uh, you know, the actual instigator of the, of the fighting. So I'll leave Jefferson Davis with, with that. It's, um, he might, he'll show up again, I'm sure <laughs> in this series, probably more than I'd like to see. Um, is he, is he appear more in this volume? I think he does. Where's Lincoln anyways? Okay. I, you know, I want to hear from other people. I don't want to hear so much from these, heads of states and politicians. We, I've already done the Lincoln series. I kind of want to hear from like uh, like the media and the, the people on the street and all that a little bit more. Eyewitness accounts. I'm really excited to get some of the soldiers' accounts too as they start to drift into the, into the story. Um, all right, next we have Frederick Douglass who wrote an essay. This is in his, the Douglass Monthly. I talked about this before that at the time he had his own kind of newspaper called the Douglass Monthly which, I don't know, he named his newspaper after himself, but that's fine. I guess Douglas deserves it. Um, I, I guess I'm too humble to ever do anything like that. But his, I guess he had the name recognition to, to justify this. Um, and what's good about this document, though, and other ones that he's publishing, is he is, again, like, like Grant was kind of prescient about how the war would end slavery, Douglas is saying, here's our chance to end slavery, and we should be as radical as possible in, in making that happen. Um, so, and, and again, these are things that are going to happen. This is, uh, black soldiers are going to be crucial in ending the war and ending slavery. It's, there's no other way to look at it. Um, but he's saying at this time, we need to make this about a war to end slavery as soon as possible. Not only will that make the war go quicker, but it will ensure that this war is worth fighting for. Quote, freedom to the slave should now be proclaimed from the capital and should be seen above the smoke and fire of every battlefield, waving from every loyal flag. Um, and he actually says we need extreme measures. And what that extreme measure is, is the mobilization of a, quote, of slaves and free colored people to be called into service and formed into a liberating army. Um, so the language here is very, very direct that this is the blacks should be formed into an army of liberation to free other slaves um, or people who are still in slavery, I suppose. Um, which, of course, is what happens. Um, the vast majority of the black soldiers who served in the Union Army were runaway slaves. Um, they, weren't, they weren't free blacks from the North for, for the most part. So this is a good document. This is... Uh, I don't know if this is the one where he says like 200,000 black soldiers will, will call, make the Confederacy surrender immediately. If, was that him? Um, I remember that quote probably from the Ken Burns documentary. I don't know, but it's very similar in tone to that idea that this is going to end the war more quickly and it's going to 
you know, turn the war into one of liberation. Um, so next we have Walt Whitman um, from the spring of 1861. Uh, his poem, First O Songs for the Prelude. This would later be published in Drum Taps in 1865, which is his collection of Civil War poetry, I believe. Um, makes sense. I haven't even dared to even think about going into the um, poetry yet, so I don't know that much about Whit Whitman's. Someday I'll have to do it, I suppose. Take on a book of poetry. It'll probably be Robert Frost when I do it, um, just because he's a little bit easier to swallow. Um, but Whit Whitman should be there. It's, it's a, it looks like it's a pretty nice volume. I just really struggle with poetry. Anyways, this is a good poem, though. This is a poem really about mobilization in Manhattan. And as you, you see the visualization of troops on the street and people rushing out of their homes to sign up for the military, the drum taps on the street, the militarization of the town, the citizens being mobilized. The, you know, this is great. Uh, to the drum taps prompt, to the young men following in and arming, the mechanics arming, the trawl and jack plane and blacksmith's hammer toast aside with precipitation, the lawyer leaving his office and arming, the judge leaving the court, the driver deserting his wagon and the street, jumping down, throwing the reins abruptly down the horse's back, the salesman leaving the store, the boss, bookkeeper, porter, all leaving, squads gathered everywhere by consent, by common consent and arm. So that's the feeling of this. A poem, which is just trying to talk about Manhattan, brought awakened, brought to alertness by Fort Sumter, and the sounds and the smells and the actions and the, and the of mobilization. It's it's a it's a nice window into this. Now maybe it's a little bit over overblown, not really drawn necessarily for life, but I think it is drawn from like the sentiment of the moment. We've seen that in George Templeton Strong. Uh, who's also in New York. Um, he's a New Yorker. <laughs> I don't know where he is at the moment, but he's also witnessing the mobilization. And he had similar uh, sentiments about the, the need to bring the country together to defeat this, uh, this treason. All right, uh, next we got uh, Woodfield Scott to George B. McClellan. This is the kind of document that's super boring but it's in it's short but it has to sort of be here because it is so crucial to the military history of the war even if it's it's not like liter it's not like literary brilliance by any sense but um of course winfield scott is the commander-in-chief he had been since the mexican war and i think he would remain pretty high up in the in the army i don't know what would be his rank until the end till maybe grant takes over general command of the of the military um you know the army of the potomac of course was constantly changing leadership throughout the war but um at the time it was george b mcclellan he was uh or he was no he, george b mcclellan at the time was commanding the ohio militia he'd later on early in the war be uh the the commander of the army of the potomac during the the What's the name of that campaign? The Peninsula is it the Peninsular Campaign? The campaign where they try to land troops in the coastal part of Virginia and march under Richmond from there instead of going overland. Um. Anyways, that campaign was McClellan's. Uh, McClellan would later run for president, of course, losing to Lincoln on that kind of peace ticket. 
but what's important about this document is it does set the plan, the, the so-called plan that you learn about in, in high school or college history class, and it's called the Anaconda Plan, which is while we're mobilizing land troops, we're going to get to work on the Navy, and the Navy is going to blockade the South and take strategic forts along the coast and take cities on the coast, and this would effectively you know, maintain the blockade, and then moving forward, you, you cut the South up, so... I don't think this talks about that part of the Anaconda plan where you kind of not just surround but twist. Uh, that's, I guess, the second stage of the Anaconda plan. But the first part of it is really being the blockade and then, you know, securing the Mississippi and securing the coastline, uh, making sure the South can't, uh, act, you know, engage its commodity power in the international market. And of course, the most important city in this would be New Orleans, which because of the importance of the Mississippi. And of course, that is one of the first blows to the Confederacy is the fall of North Car New Orleans. It's also the place where Reconstruction was first kind of tried out. It's it's where emancipation policies were were had to be worked out by the military and by the Republicans early on. Um, so it's an important state in the war for that reason. But um, he does say, though, that, and here's where he maybe is, you, you can think of, of Sherman as well, Sherman's warnings, is he's saying impatience is going to be our big enemy because, you know, Lincoln's calling for, what, 75,000 troops at this point. Of course, many more sign up, but, you know, the original call was quite limited. And he's saying, like, patriotic and loyal union friends, this is the language he uses, are going to want to, uh, us to pursue this war quickly, you know, on the on the land and it's like no we got to actually set this up for all you know to strangle the south and that's not a short-term napoleonic kind of battle um so the fact that his strategy wins out and it was like early established and maybe not as many people know winfield scott as they might know um mcclellan and meade and um grant of course sherman and the others so anyways, that's, uh, that's the Anaconda plant. All right, so next we have uh, actually a soldier's account, um, Charles B. Hayden's diary from May 3rd to the 12th. So this is a, he's a law clerk from Kalamazoo who enlisted in the local militia of the Michigan Infantry. And so he's at an encampment near Detroit and talks about what life is like. And so what do we see here? Um, you know, this is part of military history that maybe is not as dramatic as the wars, but a crucial part and something military historians are focusing more and more about now is like the day-to-day -day life, the drudgery of war, the, the, the mundane nature of death of, for most soldiers, right? Dying of illness. And we see that. We see people die of illness in this diary. We see um, people having to get used to camp life and people who had family lives and lived in, in normal you know, with their wives and children, getting used to living in this this very different environment, in, you know, encampment. Um, the, the uh, you know, the effect of camp life on morals. And, and what's really kind of interesting about some of these is you have a, a little bit of a moral scare by some of these writers. And certainly Hayden has this. I, I think it's earnest. I don't think it's him, like protesting too much in a way because he's actually partaking in it. I think he does actually seem 
concerned about this. And of course, this is a concern of the antebellum period is, the, is morality, right? It's a whole part of the antebellum reform movement. Even the anti-slavery movement was framed as a moral crisis uh, by many abolitionists. So you have like the anti-sex worker movement and you have efforts to reform the lives of sailors, the temperance movement, of course, and all these things. Um, so there's a concern about the, the morality of, of society kind of going down because of service in the military, um, which is maybe something that needs to be explored a little bit more. Uh, you know, do these moral crises, I mean, what impact does war have on, on perceptions of morality, I guess, is my question. Uh, he talks about the food, the small pay, um, the you know the drilling, and it's just kind of the mundane aspects of war. So I, I really like this document because it does get into that day-to-day aspect and how war really isn't the you know it wasn't battles every day. Mostly it was just walking around or sitting around and dying of illness. Uh, so next we have U.S. Grant uh, writing to. Uh, his father, um, in May 1861. I won't say much about this because he's kind of making the same prediction he made to his father-in-law about the war going to be, so is going to be a quick war because of the value of, of enslavement and women will fall and slavery will collapse and there'll be nothing worth fighting for. Um, and he actually predicts here uh, a black insurrection. Um, so, some good stuff there, but, but more or less repetitive of what we've already seen. Uh, next, John Hay. Um, so this is uh, like a assistant to his secretary, John Nicolay. Um, so this is like his from his diary. So it's just like life in the White House kind of kind of source. It's it's a window into Lincoln and his administration. That's not from Lincoln's uh, voice uh, mouth. Um, so I'm sure these documents have all been perused by historians over the years. So what to say about this? Oh, just kind of a window into like how the people in the White House are thinking, I suppose. Um, one really interesting aspect of this was talking about like Jefferson Davis's quote-unquote manifesto. I don't know if that's referring to the the speech he gave uh, to, to Congress, but it might, or at least it's a similar type of document because he says he ignores all mention of the right of revolution and continuing his defense in the uh, to the state's right to secede, which is kind of like where Lincoln back in his, fir- I think it's in the first inaugural actually kind of eggs the South on saying like, you don't have a right to secede under the constitution. You have a right to revolution perhaps, but that's not the argument they were really making, even though they were sometimes calling on the legacy of the American revolution. They weren't quite saying our right this is a straight-up revolution. They're saying more, this is our, our right to out. We always had the right to opt out of the Constitution if we wanted. And I just think it's, it's something that the administration was thinking about, about how this was being framed. And I think this puts, some, this puts the federal government in a better position, maybe, vis-a-vis the South in terms of these arguments. Because if they were making a straight-up argument for revolution, then... You know, the, a lot of the arguments against secession don't matter because it really is just a straight up revolt them. Um, but at the same time, maybe they wanted that because then you, you would have the South because that's how the North frames it too. They're saying you're in rebellion 
And so if they're saying we're actually in Rebellion 2, then they're talking about the same ground, I guess. They're talking about it in the same way. Um, so I'm not sure. I, I, sometimes I get the sense he, they want them to go that far, you know, rather than just framing it as a constitutional debate. But either way, this the, you know, either argument, I think the North had responses to. But anyways, I, uh, I guess I didn't think out this thought as well as I, I could. But I do think there's something going on there about the way the South frames it. Um, what else? So this is interesting. He talks about, a little bit about slavery here. Um, he agreed, uh, talks about this guy, Carl Schurz. Um, and he talks about the discontent among slaves. He said, he agreed with me that the commandants at Pickens and Monroe were unnecessarily squeamish in imprisoning and returning to their masters. The fugitives came to their gates, begging to be employed. So what that tells us is almost immediately, May, I mean, this is a month after Fort Sumter. You already have slaves showing up at Union forts and at Union lines wanting to help in the war effort. So it didn't take long at all for Southern slaves to enter into revolt. Now, of course, many of these are initially are in border states that didn't secede. So a lot of the trouble with what to do with these is do you return them to masters if they're from loyal states or you know if they're from states that have seceded but they claim but the owners claim to be loyal what do you do right and of course eventually the policy is to accept these as contraband of war you know but many people from the border states would see their slaves run away to union armies and and be mixed up in this contraband policy so um yeah that's what, what's kind of cool about this is it is just a kind of a window into some of the day-to-day conversations that are going on in the white house so next we have judith mcguire's diary this is a virginian woman uh who's her her hometown was seized pretty early in the war by the union army it, it's one of those right outside of outside of Washington, right? So they became refugees, which of course happened to many families, but this is just one of the first. So I think that's that's notable. This is one of the early refugee families. Um, she's kind of uh, optimistic. She's like, we, you know, we can't admit weakness. We have to be strong for the soldiers. She talks also about the mobilization of civilians, even though this area falls very quickly to, to the United States or to the loyal um, forces. Um, so next we have uh, William T. Sherman to uh, to his brother, John Sherman. And this is, uh, he's in Missouri at this point. Um, and Missouri was a place where there was a lot of tension between secessionists and unionist forces, probably more so than any other of the border states. I don't know so much about Kentucky. But I don't think, you had a little of this in Maryland. We saw the Baltimore riots. But I think it was strongest more on the west um and of course missouri was bordering you know kansas and you know it's kind of a base of operations for slaveholding forces in you know in bleeding kansas and all that um but that's where sherman is it's funny sherman keeps being in the centers of the secessionist activities whether it was louisiana and then later missouri so he he's kind of got a window into the secessionist mind maybe better than than someone like grant had which is maybe why he predicted a long war um 
But this document also gets into his own decisions to re-enlist in the military. Um, and he's kind of telling his brother that. But he is worried about the secessionist fervor in, in Missouri. All right, the next document is very, very important because it gets to uh, um, this whole contraband slave issue. I, I don't know what his, if historians still like that term. I, I, I haven't finished reading that uh, Freedom National book by uh, James Oakes, and I, and I probably should read it alongside this one, but I got so many other books to read. But, but I should. Also, my work is just so demoralizing. It's so hard to get any work done. When I'm at work, if you know what I mean, the work that matters, not the work that doesn't matter. The stuff I'm paid for doesn't matter. But the, the work that really does matter. Um, okay, this is Benjamin Butfl Butler, Butler to Winfield Scott. So Benjamin Butler was one of the first generals to have to deal with this contraband slave question, or these runaway slaves, these revolting slaves, slaves in revolt, uh, who came to Union forts and, and the Union lines saying, we want to help or we want freedom, and all the politics of what that means. Because if you start accepting them, then you're endorsing this as a war for emancipation, but you're also weakening the enemy, and then the whole question of like, what if an owner writes and says, I'm a loyal citizen. It's not my fault. My state seceded. I want my slaves back. Um, Lincoln said he wasn't going to touch slavery where it existed. And this for early part of the war was a, was a bit of a tense issue. And something when we looked at our Lincoln series, we saw Lincoln have to pirouette on this various times in the first year of the war. The Emancipation Proclamation deals with that um, once and for all. But for that first year, until that document's passed, it's a, it's a back and forth kind of thing but you know benjamin butler takes the leadership saying um he has a legal right he's claiming here he's informing his commanding officer that he has a legal right to claim these as as the proper property being used against the united states in some way quote shall they be allowed to use this property against the united states and we not be allowed to use it for the aid of the united states now the problem here of course from an abolitionist perspective is to still seeing these men and women as property um it is a, attacking that but if you're getting your freedom you know do you care about this legal aspect you know um we'll see uh if we get their voices in this anthology hopefully we do of course most of them couldn't read but hopefully in other ways we're gonna we have we, have, we know from their actions that they didn't mind going to these being so-called contraband uh, if it meant freedom so I guess that's where I'm going to come on, come down on it. But I do think, you know, abolitionists had their thoughts about, you know, how we frame these things. And again, the Emancipation Proclamation ends that, that need to frame it in that way. So the next document is about the same thing. This is the New York Times reporting on General Butler. And this is actually popularizing the term contraband of war. Um, and it talks about, it's just talking about slaves going to the Union Army um, trickling in a few a day, but it adds up, right? When you have troops all over the country and, you know, 10 a day, 20 a day here and there, it adds up over the course of a four-year war, right? Um, but, you know, it's still framing its property. New York Times reporting there are $60,000 worth of this sort of property in camp, and it's hourly increasing. Of course, these are people who are running uh, to, to their freedom. 
So uh, a few more documents here. So next, Kate Stone's uh, journal. Did we look at her before? Sounds familiar. Um, May 15th to 27th. Uh, she's from Louisiana. So she's from a wealthy cotton plantation. And so this is another kind of Southern woman reflecting on uh, the war and experiencing it in a day-to-day -day way. Um, and she focuses a little bit more here on the struggles of the civilians, I think, than some of the more jingoistic accounts we've read, where it's like, oh, rah, rah, go troops. She's a little bit talking about already early in the war how there's already struggles, right? Quote, we must save all sorts of seeds as we'll get no more from the north. Mama's having quantities of peas, potatoes, and all things edible planted. And our only chance for anything from this time until the close of the war will be to raise it ourselves. Strict economy is to be the order of the day. Um, now, there is still the jingoistic remarks about Lincoln's unjust rule and his violence and his aggression and all that. But mostly this is a good document about just her family and their life and how it's changing. You know, people going off to war, um, Uncle Bo having to drill with the local militia. And, you know, Uncle Bo just being a family member, people having to say goodbye. It's 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 um, the her the mom, mama, of, yeah, you know, load, helping load up the horses when the young men go away uh, on their way to I think it's to Vicksburg. They go great. Great stuff here. Uh, it ends. This passage ends with our causes just and must prevail. But there's so much pain you can feel in the lead up to this. And when you hear about later in the war how southern women were writing letters to their husbands and brothers and, and sons saying desert come back help me give up on this this when the struggle at home became too much this patriotism went away pretty pretty quickly so next we have george templeton strong's visit to washington so i guess we do know where george templeton strong was around this time what uh, i don't know when this is compared to when first all songs of the prelude was written it seemed to be a little bit later but um, he did go visit uh, Washington. Um, so this is when he becomes treasurer of the United States Sanitary Commission. So this was uh, a commission that was just helping with sanitary conditions in the in the army camps and stuff. So that's kind of his sort of public service during the war. Of course, George Templeton Strong, much more well known for his journals than this public service, as honorable as it may have been. Um, yeah, this is just a tour of Washington. I guess this is a nice window into Washington during the war, I suppose. Um, and, you know, he hears things about rebel troops fleeing Harper's Ferry, for instance. He hears about, um, you know, soldiers coming through. But he also visits sites. So there's that. Uh, next, John Brown's Body, written in May of 1861, the original lyrics. And the lyrics that I'm using for the bumper of this episode aren't the same as what we have here. Um, but that's okay. We'll hang Jeff Javis to a tree was one line. Uh, John Brown's knapsack is strapped upon his back. His pet lambs will meet him on the way. I actually haven't heard these lyrics sung before. I mean, the moldering in the grave, I've heard that one. But a lot of these, these I haven't heard before. But anyways, this brings us to the end 
I think. No, two more documents, but only one major one. And that is Roger B. Taney's opinion ex parte on uh, habeas corpus. So, of course, this is one of the more controversial issues. I mean, I don't have a big deal problem with it. It's, it's you know, clearly seems to me a war power that the president has, um, especially when you're dealing with these assholes. Um, but George Roger B. Taney, so he's the guy who, who did the decision, uh, the Dred Scott decision. That's his, his claimed historical fame. Not a very... Uh, not a very good one. Often seen as the worst case, the worst decision in Supreme Court history. Um, but I don't know about that. I, I think it's sometimes thrown out as the worst case. So there's a lot of bad decisions over the years. Uh, and in a way, it. I mean, I'm not. Sh I'm not sure the founders did think want black people to be citizens. You know, it was that a bad reading of the Constitution as it appeared from our current Constitution. It obviously doesn't make sense, but. I don't know. I want to set. The, I'll set that aside for now because this isn't going to be about the Dred Scott decision. But this is a minority opinion, right? It's opinion ex parte. So he's uh, not the winner here, but he's basically saying the president doesn't have this this right, and it's a pretty sprawling decision, I suppose. But but whatever. Tandy didn't agree with this. I, I guess I would like to have seen maybe other documents referring to this habeas corpus issue. Maybe people who were arrested and, you know, didn't have the regular uh, habeas corpus rights respected or uh, p police applying this in some way. Maybe we'll see that kind of stuff in the future. I, I don't really care what Roger B. Taney thought about it. And the final document, uh, Henry A. Wise, speech at Richmond. Uh, so this is after the capital moves to Virginia. I guess we didn't see too much about Virginia secession, but Virginia seceded. Um, was that it? like almost immediately after Fort Sumter, I think, pretty quickly after it. But this is a wild document where he's, he's glad the war is coming. Listen to this. They have invaded the sanctity of your homes and firesides and endeavored to play master, father, and husband for you and your households. Uh, this obsession with family, I mean, so much of the, the panic about the end of slavery or the threat of the Republicans to slavery was, had to do with family, right? It's like, we need to protect our women from what's going to happen if all these black people are free? What's going to happen to our women? It's really an, a, a weird obsession with family. Um, but listen to this. Though war was demanded, it was not for you to declare war. But now that the armies of the invader are hovering around the tombs of Washington, where is the Virginian heart that does not beat with a quicker pulsation at this last and boldest desecration of his beloved state? The hordes are already approaching our metropolis and extending their folds around our state, as does the anaconda around the victim. The call is for action. I rejoice in this war. Who is there that, uh, that now dares to put on sanctity to deprecate war or the horrors, glories of war? None. Why? Because it's a war of purification. You want war? fire and blood to purify you and the lord of hosts has demanded that you should walk through blood and fire your call to a fiery baptism crazy this is wild wild documents um this wild speech but it really gets to the heart of the, the sentiment i think of of many um many southerners it's a great way to end this episode because so much of this 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 selection of documents is surrounding the mobilization of troops we see what whitman 
looking at the streets of New York alive with mobilization and you have Southerners talking about this like a, like a, the war to end all wars kind of thing, the war of purification, the war that's going to cleanse the land, which is, of course, how John Brown talked about it too, but from a very, very different point of view. All right. I, I promised a quicker episode and I think I achieved that here. So uh, that's great. Um, next episode, we'll, we'll definitely we'll get the Battle of Bull Run in the next episode. Uh, a lot of the documents are like accounts of that battle. So we'll see how those go. Um, yeah, we're, we're coming to the end of this first volume. So moving right along. I think it's when we get into the second and third and fourth volume, is, you know, where we see the burden of war, the blood, the illness, the, the thousands of deaths, you know, maybe the sentiments of a lot of these writers will change and their feelings about the world will change. And I really look forward to seeing how that goes. So anyways, uh, it's been fun, and I'll um, see you soon. Let me know what you think about any of this stuff. And, and as I said before, please, uh, if you just join this podcast and you want to kind of start from the beginning, I'll begin uploading my episodes to YouTube, um, and I may do some editing. I, for the first couple, I just posted one image. Um, but in the future, I may do some editing of them. Uh, if I want, I'm kind of enjoying going back and listening to some of these thoughts I had. Um, earlier on my style of podcasting early on was very very different too I was just starting I was much more disciplined I kind of like how we do it now it's a little more chill for me but anyways it's it's good to just revisit these things and and putting them on YouTube will will give me more options going forward if I want to keep this Podbean account going or not Um, probably will but you know it does cost money so, uh, anyways, that's it uh, for this episode. Um, and I'll see you next time as we, we talk about the first battle of Bull Run. Um, thanks for listening. He captured Harper's Ferry with his 19 men so true. He frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hanged him for a traitor. They themselves the traitor crew. His soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul.